This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We're looking this morning at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you've got the uh, few Bibles there, it's page 45. Exodus 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, literally a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to the scriptures this morning, that your Holy Spirit would give us light. In your light, we would see light. We pray, Father, for your blessing on this time of study of your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. These were grim times for the children of Jacob, of Israel, to use the covenant name God had given to Jacob. They had, of course, gone down into Egypt back in the days when Joseph was in charge. And Pharaoh, with gratitude to Joseph for all he had done for Egypt, welcomed Joseph's family with open arms, had given them the land of Goshen to settle in. And the times were good. But these were grim times because a new Pharaoh was in power who didn't know Joseph, had no regard for what had happened then, and his response to the children of Israel was not one of welcome, but one of fear, one of concern about their increasing numbers. And so to deal with that, he took the guests and made them slaves and worked them hard on his construction projects in order to crush their wills, in order to break 
their spirits in hopes that being so occupied with their time and energy in work, they perhaps would not have time for other things and they would cease to multiply. Well, they continue to grow. And so Pharaoh institutes a plan by which the Hebrew midwives, when a male child was born, was to put that child to death. They wouldn't do it. And so then he decides to simply task all Egyptians with the responsibility of tossing any Hebrew male baby that is born into the river. And there's where chapter 1 ends. Now, as we move into chapter 2, as we look at the passages before us today, the camera, as it were, zooms in from this big view of what was going on in Goshen, what was going on in all of Egypt, to what happened in one family, one home there among the children of Israel. It begins in verse 1 with with a very ordinary occurrence. With two people, we're not even given their names at this point, uh, get married. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now later, in Exodus 6, we'll find out that Moses' parents' names are Amram and Jacobin. But for now, Moses doesn't even name his parents. He merely describes them as a Levite man and a Levite woman, a daughter of Levi. And they got married. Something very ordinary in these very dismaying times. And something else uh, that ordinarily would be a happy occasion. They uh, had a baby boy. Now, again, ordinarily a very happy thing, but in the current situation in Egypt, this baby boy was born under a death sentence. Now, as we look at this passage, maybe you notice this as we read through the passage, there's no mention of God. Where is God? Well, he's not mentioned here. But God is very, very much present here because he is sovereign, because he is ruling, because these events, dire as they may be, are even so under his control. And God has a special interest in and a special purpose for this little boy who was born. And so we see God's providence working out here, his delightful providence, to preserve this little boy. Just in this one household, God at work to preserve this special child. Now, God's providence works out through means often through people. And that's exactly what happens here. And as we study this passage, we're going to look at it through the people through whom God worked to preserve this little boy's life. First of all, God worked through a mother's faith. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. The child is born, verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, we might be forgiven for thinking he was the firstborn, uh, because he mentions they got married and then they conceived and bore a son. Actually, this was child number three. Uh, we know that Moses had an older sister because she occurs here in the passage. We later learn her name was Miriam. We also know that Moses had an older brother 
uh, because he's later named. He doesn't occur in the passage, but he occurs later in uh, in the book of Exodus. They also had a, a brother by the name of Aaron. And Aaron is mentioned later on, chapter 7, verse 7. But this child is born, and apparently Miriam, of course, was exempt from Pharaoh's edict. Uh, perhaps Aaron was grandfathered in, so to speak. Maybe he was born and uh, safe before the edict was given. Uh, we don't know. At any rate, he was spared. But now this edict is in place, and this baby boy is born. And it says that she saw he was a fine child. Well, every mother thinks her son is a fine child. Literally, the Hebrews said he was a good child. Now, I don't think that's speaking to his his moral character. He, too, was a son of Adam, a sinful man like the rest of us, as we see in Moses' life, and we'll see. So it's probably not saying that he's he's ethically perfect or anything like that. Um, Probably it has something to the, you know, fine baby to be sure. It may have just been a reference to his health. She saw he was one who was going to make it. Uh, of course, in, that, in those days, infant mortality was uh, was higher, and uh, the death of a, of a child was uh, a more regular occurrence uh, for couples who had a baby. Uh, it is worth noting that in Stephen's account, uh, Stephen refers to him as being beautiful in the sight of God. In chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you know, where Stephen is about to die, and he gives that wonderful survey of Old Testament history. If you're looking for the Cliff Notes version, uh, read Stephen's account of it in Acts chapter 7. If you just want a sweeping view of some Old Testament history, uh, that's a good place to read. Um, and in uh, Hebrews, where we read earlier, that he was a, he was a beautiful child. So apparently a very healthy, uh, fine-looking baby. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, kept him quiet, defying the king's edict that he should be tossed into the Nile River. She hid him, protected him, but you can only keep a baby, a growing baby, a crying baby, hidden for so long. You know, maybe at first they could kind of hide him behind Aaron. Did we hear, did we hear crying coming from this home? Well, that was Aaron here. Yeah, you know, he's, he's okay. Uh, he, you can't, you can't kill him. He's safe. Uh, but eventually they could hide him no longer. Verse three. And so when that happened, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. I asked someone this question at VBS. Perhaps you've heard the old Bible riddle. How many animals were with Moses on the ark? You know the answer. Zero. Nine. Right? Because it was Moses who had an ark. It was Noah who had the ark. Of course, you know, it's like the you know, question of what was the bus driver's name, riddle. Everybody's concentrating on how many got off and how many got on. It's kind of a, like a sleight of hand, only with words. You know, you just, the focus is on the number of animals, not the fact you said Moses. There's Noah who had the ark. Who built the ark? Noah. Noah. Who built the ark? Brother Noah built the ark. We know that. The song teaches us that. The Bible teaches us that. But Moses also had an ark. The word here for basket is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 6, translated ark. It refers to a vessel, uh, a casket, 
a coffin. It refers to a container. You know, we refer to the Ark of the Covenant, the box that was the container in which the Ten Commandments were carried. You know, the, the, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the box. Well, this was a basket, but it's the same word. And, and there's a parallel there, and not just in the word, but in what happened. That Moses' life was spared from water by water, just as Noah and his family were spared. And not just them, but the people of God were spared through the, the huge ark, saved from water through water, and through their deliverer here, who was saved in this ark from water by water. And she makes this basket with bulrushes or papyrus, uh, these reeds that grew along the, the banks of the river there in Egypt. Uh, she wove this basket for them. The Egyptians would build significantly large boats, vessels, out of this same papyrus that could also unfold it and prepare it and use it for writing on. And she makes this boat for, of course, through leak, so she, she covers it, daubs it with bitumen and pitch, uh, this tar-like stuff to seal it and waterproof it. The same stuff, by the way, that Moses used on that, or sorry, Noah used on the huge ark that he built to seal it, to waterproof it. Uh, and so she prepares it, and she put the child in it. The, the word is the same. She placed the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. The, the implication was this was something done gently. This was something done lovingly. No doubt this was something done with considerable heartbreak. You know, we read this. I almost think that what we have here is like what happened in Genesis 22. And the Lord calls Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and go to a place he will show him and there kill him. And Abraham does so. And we think, well, Abraham just got up and said, well, of course, I'll obey God and go kill my son. What's left out is the anguish of heart that no doubt was there. And I suspect it's the same thing here. Here's a mother who's trying to protect her child and recognizes things have gotten to the point where she can hide him no longer, that death is a very real possibility for this beautiful, healthy baby boy. And in one sense, she carries out the king's edict. He was put in the river. She put him in the river. But she put him in this little ark that she had made for him, and she gently places her baby boy in it, and gently places this ark among the reeds by the river bank. Now, the dangers to him are obvious, not just that he might flip over and drown, but also uh, that he might become crocodile food. Uh, but apparently she had some desire to see what would happen to him. And so she, we read that his sister stood to see what would be done to him. It's also quite possible she put him where she put him, knowing it was a place where there was frequent, frequent human traffic, hoping that perhaps he would be spotted, hoping that someone would see him, although she had no way of knowing what would happen when someone saw him, when someone found him. And so we see in the first place God working through a mother's faith. Uh, in one sense she obeyed Pharaoh, but she did it in such a way that the child's life might possibly be preserved, although she had no way of knowing that and certainly could not guarantee that. And we're reminded of uh, Hebrews that commends her in, in, in 11.23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, 
and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So a mother's faith. The second avenue by which God's providence was played out here, was worked out here, was through a princess's compassion. We see this in verses 5 and 6. So Miriam's placed there to see what would happen, and what she what happens is this. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Just happened at that time to come down to bathe at the river. You see the providence of God at work. And uh, her young women, her attendants were there with her, beside her, uh, accompanying her. And she sees this basket there among the reeds. Thought that's interesting. Sent her servant woman to go get it. And in verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she didn't say, you know, my father said these, these, and she immediately identified him as Hebrew. This is one of the Hebrews' children. What she didn't do was obey the king's decree and immediately plunge the child into the water and hold him there until he died. She could have done that. She took pity on him. She felt compassion on him. And it wasn't a case of misidentification. This is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew exactly who and what this baby was. She didn't kill him. She adopted him. You see the compassion of the princess. The Lord had her there. When she sees this child, she feels for him. Her heart goes out to him. And she adopts him. I want to skip down to verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, Moses' name in Hebrew has the idea of being to draw out. Maybe uh, because he was a Hebrew child, and maybe because the daughter of Pharaoh knew some Hebrew herself, perhaps. She, she gives him this name that reflects his, his circumstances. I drew him out of the water. Moses, it sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. But it also had connections in Egyptian. It's Moses, or Mose, means son of. And uh, sometimes that name would be added to a name of a god like Tutmosis. Uh, the son of Tut, or, or even uh, even less obviously, a name like Ramesses, that M's, M-S sound at the end, it reflects the same word which Moses was named. And so he had a name that was both Hebrew and significant in Hebrew, because not only was he drawn out of the water, not only did he, was he, did he draw out in that way, but he was going to grow up to draw out God's people out of Egypt, but also a name that had significance in Egyptians. And so in Egyptian. And so we see a princess's compassion here. God worked through her that she was there, that when she saw this Hebrew child, she felt compassion for him and that she later took the child and brought the child into her own home and raised him in uh, Pharaoh, as part of Pharaoh's court. But there's one other we want to look at here, not just a mother's faith, not just the compassion of a princess, but also a sister's courage. And we have to look at Miriam here, verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. That took courage, because what she might see was her baby brother killed. 
But she stayed to see what would happen to him. And so she witnesses this whole scene with Pharaoh's daughter. And when she sees the princess look at Moses, identify Moses, she immediately goes, puts herself forward. Verse 7, this is great. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, there's a great deal of deference in how she puts this. There's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of strategy. Because what the way she phrases this, and the ESV reflects it mostly, shall I go and call for you, a nurse from the Hebrew children, a nurse of the child for you. The focus is not on the baby. It's on the princess. It's, it's, it's you know, what can I do for, for you, your highness? Let me serve you. And that's, there's some shrewdness there. Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So she went. And who else is she going to get but her own mother and the child's mother? And so she does. She calls the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter says to Jacobed, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And so Moses grew up learning the Hebrew language, learning Hebrew culture, learning Hebrew religion. Raised by his own mother. Now, as we look at that, God's providence at work, working through the faith of his mother, working through the courage of his sister, working through the compassion of the princess. God is not named, but he is very much present, and he's very much working these things out to preserve this little boy. Now, as we wrap things up, I do want to just end with several observations to kind of tie these things together. First, this was a delightful providence. But we need to recognize that many other Hebrew mothers suffered a very hard providence, a bitter providence. You think of uh, similar circumstances in Jesus' life in in Matthew 2, the, the, the death of the baby boys of Bethlehem. Yes, Jesus was spared, but there were other baby boys who were not. Yes, Mary's heart was spared, at least at that point, but there were other mothers who were not I like the way one writer puts it, talking about this. And we need to recognize that. Because, yes, we're happy for Jacobed, But we need to recognize there were many women, many mothers, weeping in grief because their baby was dead. One writer puts it this way. God does not promise that his people will never suffer, but that no suffering will ever eradicate his people. He does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. God preserved this child in a delightful providence because this child was going to be instrumental in preserving the people of God. But there were others among the people of God who died. And so we need to recognize that. We also recognize here by way of observation, and maybe this isn't the thing to talk about on Father's Day, Maybe Mother's Day would have been better, but in God's providence, we weren't here on Mother's Day. We need to recognize to this point the bravery of five women. Going back into chapter 1, 
So far, the only man who's been done anything is Pharaoh, and he's ordered genocide. You have the two Egyptian midwives, Shifra and Pua, who refuse to obey the king's edict. You have Jacobed, Moses' mother, who refuses to obey the king's edict, or if you want to say it, she obeyed it in such a way as to mock it. She placed her child alive into the river, floating. There's Miriam, who is part of all of this. And there's Pharaoh's own daughter, who does not obey her own father's edict. Four, five rather, brave women who stand against this wickedness and are recorded for us here. Now, brave men will come, to be sure. But it's just worth noting, up to this point, it's been five brave women who stand against the orders of the king. Another observation is just the irony. You could say humor. Uh, it's a kind of an ironic humor, the irony of God here, who makes a mockery of Pharaoh. It, it should remind you maybe of Psalm 2. You know, the nations rage against the Lord. What is God's reaction? Verse 4, the Lord in heaven laughs. He laughs at them. He holds them in derision. It's like your toddler son getting frustrated with you and going after you, you know, as a dad. It's, it's not threatening. It's kind of funny, you know, as he socks you in the knee, you know, in the, in the shin. As he's, you know, it's kind of pitiful. Well, that's how God looks at Pharaoh. Oh, there's Pharaoh. Yes, he's trying to get rid of my people. Funny. And God makes a complete mockery of him in chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, and in fact, in the chapters that follow, this crushing defeat, this ridicule of the, the greatest power on the earth in that time. God laughs. Yes, his people are suffering. God doesn't laugh at that. But he laughs at the pitiful efforts of this Pharaoh who thinks he's going to get rid of the people of God, that he's going to alter the destiny of creation and alter God's purposes. But the irony here that Israel's deliverer would grow up in Pharaoh's own household, rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter, raised as her son. I like this way somebody puts it. He says, Moses is spared by being cast in the very Nile that was to drown him. Is treated with maternal kindness by the very king who had condemned him, by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him, and to whose descendants he would become a nemesis, and is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. The irony in this passage, the humor, is God just makes a mockery of Pharaoh in his raging threats. And then last, very important, the dual nature of Moses. Was Moses a Hebrew? Yes. Was Moses an Egyptian? Yes. You see, verse 10 is vitally important. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. You see, Moses, as a Hebrew, could identify with his people. And in fact, he does, as we'll see in the next chapter, we'll see in the next verses, Lord willing, look at next Sunday. He was a Hebrew, 
He identifies with the Hebrews, and yet he was Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. He could dress Egyptian. He was educated in all the knowledge of the Egyptians, which, by the way, was the most advanced and powerful society on the earth in that time. He could move in both circles. Because he was Egyptian, because he was raised in the court, he had access to the throne. You see, God was uniquely preparing Moses for the role, the calling that he had for him. He was a Hebrew, but he was also an Egyptian and could move easily in Egyptian circles in a way that no other Hebrew could. God is working out his plan. He's working out his purposes. But you can't help notice that. And notice that Israel's deliverer in those days, both Hebrew and Egyptian, without thinking about the one of whom Moses was a type, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior, our Deliverer, the the leader of our exodus out of sin, who on the one hand was fully human, tempted like we are, suffered the kinds of things that we suffer here, could identify with us as one of us, and yet was fully God, fully divine, had unfettered access to the throne of His Father in heaven. And how God preserved him when as a child he was under the sentence of death to accomplish the work that God had for him to do, the redemption of his people. Dear friends, we read this passage and just marvel at the providence of God, and we should do that. But we should go beyond that, not just to marvel at the providence of God, but to worship the God of such providence. What a God who's working out his purposes here. This is a God we can trust when we don't understand. This is a God we can count on when we see no way out. This is a God we can rest in when life hurts. This was the God of Moses who brought Moses to lead his people out of these impossible circumstances. This is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his own son to be the savior, the deliverer of all who would trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you. We are amazed as we read this passage and and so many like it in scripture that show how you were at work even when everything seems to be going to pieces. And Lord, we can look at our own lives. Those of us who've lived long enough and seen your providence and seeing things that seemed terrible and were terrible at the time and yet how you worked through that to accomplish great good and father we give praise to you and we worship you and above all father we thank you for the lord jesus fully god and fully man our savior our redeemer we pray in his name amen